everybody. Thank you for tuning in to episode 128, a special edition of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from the harmful effects of pornography. If you or anyone that you know is struggling to put pornography behind them once and for all, and trust me, it can be done, then please head over to pathbackrecovery.com. There you can sh- uh, download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that is pathbackrecovery.com. And please head over to the Virtual Couch page on Instagram. It's simply at Virtual Couch. And you can also find a Virtual Couch page on Facebook. That is new. Previously, I was only pointing people to Tony Overbay, licensed marriage and family therapist. You can go like them both. Why not? And if you uh, have a minute and you've enjoyed some of the Virtual Couch podcast material, please do me a favor and rate, review, subscribe, all of those good things wherever you get your podcast. And this episode is also up on the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. So if you want to see Dr. Adam Harcourt live, I guess not live, if you want to see him recorded on YouTube, then please head over to the Virtual Couch YouTube channel. Um, Dr. Harcourt is a, a striking young man, uh, and I can say young man at one point, I have even get his age. Um, and, uh, and I almost pulled the, hey, I could be your dad. Um, I would have been a very young father at the time, but, uh, but man, what a good interview. And I really, really enjoyed this. I don't know how long Dr. Harcourt was planning on, um, talking to me, but, uh, we went a good 40 minutes or so. And I, I could have talked to him all day. I mean, I really, I, 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 I always want to be vulnerable, authentic, all those good therapist words. And I, you know, I've had a chance to talk to many doctors as clients and, um, and there's just a, a part of me that kind of feels like, okay, you know, he, he's going to be an extremely intelligent person. I had gone all over his website, which is very impressive. It's ixneuro.com. And I just thought, man, this guy is going to, um, he's not going to get my jokes if I kind of throw a couple out there. Um, he's going to be pretty stiff and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I was going to post something on Instagram yesterday. I should probably still get to it at some point and just say, hey, my new uh, my new best friend, whether he knows it or not, Dr. Harcourt. So it, this is just a very, very easy interview with him. And uh, we talk about a lot of things. Let me first tell you a little bit about Dr. Harcourt. So born and raised in central Pennsylvania, he received his Bachelor of Science degree in psychology, which I love. We talk about that pretty early on from the University of Pittsburgh. And from there, um, he has just gone on to do a lot of uh, a lot of impressive things. He is um, he runs a, a couple of different clinics. And again, you can find out a lot more on ixneuro.com. He trains other doctors. He has an entire method named after him again, which is a very funny part of the interview, which I was extremely impressed by. He has more letters behind his name. Um, I've tried to get a few more behind my name. and uh, But man, this guy's got me beat. Uh, he is uh, Dr. Adam Harcourt. D-C, D-A-C-N-B, F-A-C-F-N, F-A-B-V-R. And I wanted to get to a joke on there because he was wearing a really nice lab coat. And uh, those those letters went on for death. Felt like they kind of went around to the back, maybe almost like a professional athlete with his name on the back. But, but yet he was so um, easy to talk to. And so we talk a lot about just functional neurology, which I like to talk about the brain. And this is somebody who really knows about the brain from a research angle and also from a practice, a daily practice angle. And there's a concept that he talks about that I just love, and it's really been hitting me lately, uh, especially over the last probably six months to a year. And that is just when you have been doing something for a long time, whether it's therapy or whether the work that he does with the brain. Um, I, I also uh, interviewed a criminal psychologist off the record. I want to have one come on my podcast. but And I think I talked about this at a previous episode of when you just have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of clients, patients, uh, you name it. And when you love what you do, when you're passionate about what you do, part of what just really helps is just beginning to see these patterns. And they kind of almost become very glaring. I've talked about this in my couples counseling where I could see 25 couples a week. And if 23 of them, I'm doing this emotionally focused therapy, this EFT, and it's just brilliant and it's beautiful. And it's these tools that people have been dying to have so that they can both feel heard and understood. The sessions are just amazing. They still, they're bumpy. Of course they are because we're talking about hard things. But then you see two or three a week and they just stand out like a sore thumb, nails on a chalkboard. And those are those times where uh, where maybe I'm kind of looking at a personality disorder. And uh, and again, it just, uh, in one sense, it breaks my heart. And another, it really is that you were able to kind of help that couple in a completely different way. And I feel like Dr. Harcourt really talks about that with the brain. And uh, he's got a thing called the bucket theory, which I can't wait for you to understand. But uh, he is definitely an expert in his field, has been doing this long enough that he um, he just really gives some some 
tips, some techniques, things that you will take away from this podcast uh, that you will be able to do just when you're kind of sitting around and that can help you um, retain some cognitive functioning, which is, isn't that our our ultimate goal? And uh, here's my, what's the word, clickbait, headline-ish kind of thing. At the very end, um, the very end, he talks about the number one most evidence-based thing that can help kind of keep you sharp. And we're talking sharp into your mid-70s based on an extremely large study that he references. So I would uh, uh, highly encourage you to hang in here, even if you're not. We talk a lot about migraines. He's an expert there. He's writing a book um, about migraines and uh, that we'll link to when that book comes out. And But even if you're not necessarily interested in migraines, but I think that his his kind of overall description of how the brain works and how different we all are, even though we all have this this brain, even though sometimes people feel like maybe their partner doesn't have one. Um, but he just gives some really good data that kind of helps us understand uh, why we have the, the conditions we may have. So even if you're not uh, into the migraine discussion, hang in there because we also talk about um, everything, just that we talk about brain fog. And I'm really fascinated by that concept. And he really puts that in, uh, in context. We talk about when people, even when their brain scans come back uh, clean or they're having struggles still. And, and, uh, but I love the concept too, where he just talks about being in a, you know, if you're in a relationship with uh, a partner and maybe you do have some chronic pain or brain related issues and, and your partner just feels like, oh man, this old story and the difficulties that that can pose in a marriage. And, uh, he gives some simple brain and eye exercises and as well as kind of some brain rehab that you can do that can help people if they're, if they're struggling. He talks about uh, post concussion um, syndrome, traumatic brain injury, and uh, that sort of thing. So I did not mean for this uh, beginning to go on. You can tell that I really enjoyed this interview. So without any further ado, let me get to my interview with my new best friend. Um, And and let me also say too, please send questions to contact at TonyOverbay.com or contact at PathBackRecovery.com because uh, he was very gracious and and we talked a little bit even once I hit stop on the record button that uh, he would he's very much up for a follow up interview uh, at some point down the road where we can just maybe bust some myths about the brain and treatment of the brain and uh, answer some questions. So I think that would be a really fun episode. So send those questions in. And uh, and again, now, without any further ado, let me get to my interview with Dr. Adam Huckworth. Okay, we're rolling. Uh, Dr. Harcourt, welcome to the virtual couch. Thanks so much for having me today. I appreciate it, Tony. Yeah, no, I, I sometimes feel like I am quite the imposter when I talk about uh, on my podcast, you know, the brain. But here I am now talking to someone who literally researches, studies, and works with the brain on a daily basis, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, before we even get into some of the questions, I noticed in your background, your undergrad was in psychology? It was. Yeah, that's why I was, I'm always happy to do uh, chat with people that are, are familiar with the same type of uh, field. Yeah. So tell me about that. What was that experience like? Did you ever kind of think, okay, forget the medical field. I'm going to, I want to sit on a couch, tell people, uh, ask them how they feel, you know? I did actually. Um, and it, you know, honestly, what it ended up uh, being for me is I, I shadowed a bunch of different professions and um, just, you know, for me, I, I like being up, moving around, you know, uh, working with my hands. And so that's kind of what led me to a different, uh, different field. But I was always fascinated from the, the beginning with just human psychology and, and how it works. And um, it really has actually served us in what we do now because there's such a big psychological and, and um, you know, brain component to things like migraine, post-concussion and other neurological disorders. So, you know, I was first introduced to mindfulness therapy, for example, from my psychiatry or psychology professor uh, back at the University of Pittsburgh, which I'm, I'm appreciative of. I got introduced to, you know, John Sarno and all his work with mind-body medicine. So, uh, it was a really good, um, really good background to have for the types of things we treat now. Gotcha. And then, so your background, and I like how when I was reading about it, you focus a lot now on is it migraines, post concussion syndrome, um, but it didn't start out that way, right? No, originally I had uh, just written a paper on a rare form of MS that we had been working with and trying to treat uh, using nutrition and functional neurology uh, modalities. And so I, I was like, oh, I'm going to work on MS and TBI because traumatic brain injury was a big thing in our field. And when I got to where we're at now in Santa Barbara, there, there was some really great resources for TBI and there were some really good uh, resources for MS. And where I actually found that there was a lot of kind of gaps in treatment was in these functional neurological disorders, things that had obvious uh, symptoms, Uh but not an obvious pathological cause. And so things like migraines and post-concussion that hasn't resolved or dizziness 
uh, all ended up being the same story. Well, I've gone, gone to 15 places. Yeah. Somebody ended up telling me it was in my head and I still can't get to work. Right. And that's, that's kind of what led us down to that. Well, I may be going backwards too, but I, you know, I was telling a couple of my clients today that I was going to have you on and I was talking about migraines and one of the people immediately said, Oh no, I've got that all figured out. You know, it's this, I do a pressure point or whatever, but you've got, I liked your, uh, is it, you call it the bucket theory. I mean, so yeah. there's, and maybe talk about that. Cause I mean, this person was like, well, no, I just tell everybody this is how you do it. And but for some reason it doesn't work for them. You know, what's wrong with them? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, that's kind of the funny thing is, um, you know, if you talk to somebody with migraines, that's gotten better or you talk to doctors that have helped people with migraines, you know, they'll all tell you they have it figured out okay. until you get a, you know, chronic migraine patient or somebody that's been suffering for a while. Um, you realize that's eh, not the whole deal. And so what happens with migraine is it's ultimately a genetic dysfunction, right? So okay. there's certain genes that actually allow certain parts of your brain to be fatigable, right? Okay. Uh, technically we call it hyperexcitability, but um, essentially it's the parts of the brain that are supposed to do their job don't. So most of the, the migraine patients suffer with areas that inhibit head and face pain. And okay. so when they become hyperexcitable, they get head and face pain. That's, that's the cause. But there's all these factors that make you more likely to have migraine, uh, which is why a diet might help one person or acupuncture helps the next or, uh, you know, a medication might help another. But if you understand that it's ultimately this part of the brain and it can be multiple different parts, uh-huh. well, now you can understand where chiropractic was great for this person, but for the next person it didn't do anything. And so the way I look at it is you, you, you imagine the part of the brain that leads to migraine as like a bucket. Okay. And when that bucket fills up with musculoskeletal, hormonal, nutritional, you know, emotional factors, and it overflows, then you get a migraine. Okay. Right. Whereas if you have a big bucket, if you will, or a stable part of that brain, now you can deal with all these stressors. You get one every you know couple of years. Whereas if you've had trauma or you've had migraines for a long time, that becomes more perpetual, or the bucket shrinks. So now you try the acupuncture, the chiropractic, or the nutrition, or the, the pressure points, or whatever. And it looks like they're not helpful. Well, mm. they may have helped to reduce your bucket filling up. Okay. But there's too many other stinking things filling it up. And so now it looks like it's not helpful. So you have to basically both look at stabilizing and making the bucket bigger and also reducing the things that fill, in, that fill it up all at the same time if you want to help those patients that are having 15, 20, or 30 migraines a month. Okay. So then, so some of the self-care or the things that, you know, are smart to do regardless can, you know, address a lot of the, the issues that fill the bucket, but there's still going to be times where the bucket's small or the bucket's large, or there's a whole bunch of stuff coming in. I like that. So even if somebody found that the, you know, all right, she presses her hand and it goes away. Then the next time that doesn't work, you know, in my world, whatever tells the brain, the what's wrong with me story, um, is kind of, uh, really frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How do you make the bucket bigger? I mean, this is uh, I like that. So that, that's the fun thing. And that's actually where, you know, uh, we talk about in the book that I'm, I'm working on. Yeah, talk about that. Okay. Uh, and then uh, I'm also teaching a postdoctoral program in migraine. We just finished up the first round of it uh, oh. last weekend in Florida. And we're actually going to be bringing it to the West Coast, which is exciting. And um, the cool thing about the program is it's not directed towards any one doctor. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, our first module is 25 hours on pathophysiology of migraine. So we oh. want you to make sure you understand it. And so as far as making the bucket bigger, the important part to understand about migraine and neurological conditions in general is typically you think, okay, either the arm's broken or it's not. A Mm. person's healthy or they're not. A person has depression or they don't. But the reality is there's gradients of all those things. And so when you look at migraine, we think about the neuron. And so the neuron is not just healthy or dead, right? The neuron has what's called this resting membrane potential, which means it's negative inside, and it takes enough stimulation to bring that threshold uh, or bring that negativity to the threshold. And then you have an action potential, which causes you know, a firing of a neuron. Okay. Now in migraine, what happens is that threshold gets closer and closer to firing off. So now you're more and more susceptible to failure, fatigue, and having this migraine. So the way that you change that is through activation. And because what happens when you get a stimulation to a neuron, it creates this cascade that stimulates DNA which creates more proteins, which makes you have a lower resting membrane potential or less likely to have a migraine. And so if you overdo it though, and so say you do too much stimulation, now a thing that's good for you was too much and now you have a migraine. So this is why a lot of times you'll see people, you know, try exercise or try, you know, uh, massage and they say, well, it gave me a migraine. 
well, that might've not been a bad therapy. It just might've been too much for you at that, at that point. And so when we look at making the bucket bigger, my, my goal is to figure out what part of the brain or brainstem is not as healthy as it should be. Okay. And then provide therapies or stimulation in order to make those areas stronger, but not too much that it leads to a migraine. <laughs> so that's why. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and what, what, what are the, I mean, so, I mean, my mind immediately thinks of, uh, is this, this, this need to be some sort of a electroshock therapy or I mean, what are, you know, what are the Sometimes. things, that, is it? Okay. Yeah. What are, what are other so, things? Yeah. So it, again, depending on the part of the brainstem. So for example, we know that, uh, there's areas near in the midbrain called the periaqueductal gray that deals with descending pain inhibitory pathways. Sometimes that's average. Well, what is around that area that you could stimulate in order to stabilize those, those parts of the brain? Well, we know that the, the brainstem is like, a, it, it's electrical, right? That's how it, it conducts uh, impulses. And so even basically any type of stimulation that you make around that area is going to lead to some activation to, say, the periaqueductal gray. And so the areas that are closest to that are things like your convergence centers. So as you're following targets in towards your face, oh, wow. as you follow things up and down, uh, proximal muscle activity, all these types of things are midbrain uh, consequences. And so in some patients, we find that those are aberrant, or you can drive those pathways in order to stabilize that part of the brain. And the more and more activity you can do this, the more and more stable that they get. So it can be an eye exercise, it can be a vestibular rehab, it can be peripheral nerve stimulation. So like electrical shock can do it. Okay. Uh, we've done uh, vagal nerve stimulation, we do laser therapy, you can do manual therapies, you can do all sorts of stuff. But if it's not targeted at the area that is dysfunctional, it's not going to make a big difference, right? So yeah, I've even seen, you know, people that didn't do well with massage, you just target it to one side versus the other. Now they do better with massage, right? So it can be something that simple. So are there, I mean, this might sound too generic, but are there then things that you recommend people do just at the base level or people that are listening, if they have a migraine that they, all right, let's go ahead and rule this part out. Sure. Um, so there, there's a lot of great stuff. So obviously, uh, starting with nutrition is a big one. Um, I have a whole diet that I go through. It takes like 30 minutes to make sure that we're dialing it in properly for each patient. But there's some generalities, right? Um, you know, I'm not breaking new ground telling you to you know avoid gluten and dairy and caffeine and alcohol, right? People get that. Yeah. But a lot of times they don't get how important that is because they didn't see a big change, right? So my okay. recommendation is don't just try to cut out gluten or dairy or one of those things by themselves. Try to do it all at the same time. Okay. Sometimes if you're sensitive to two things and you only cut out one, now it's going to look like that one that we were still sensitive to didn't help you at all. Um, so I recommend trying to cut out multiple things at once and then see if it makes a change. Okay. Um, the other thing is trying to increase your physical activity without causing the migraine. Because a lot of people will avoid, say, rotational activities or they'll avoid uh, exertional activities because it's led to a migraine. Well, that's not necessarily bad, but if you think you should be able to run for 30 minutes, but it gives you a migraine, well, try 15 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes, find how much activity you can do without, and then start pushing that more and more each day. Cause that threshold is what's going to allow you to, to get healthier and healthier. Yeah. You talked about uh, what, vagal nerve stimulation. I mean, is mm -hmm. that just good old uh, deep breathing? I mean, is that, or is it more than that? Yeah, so there, there's a ton of different ways to do vagal stimulation. Um, the one that's uh, been more researched, there's a device now that you can actually stimulate the vagal portion, portion uh, or the cervical portion of the vagal nerve, and it's just a two-pronged uh, device. You put it on the right side and the left side, so you can directly stimulate the vagal nerve. Wow. Uh, you can do it with actually through the ear. There's certain places on the ear that you can put electrical stim and do it that way. Deep breathing is great. You can do uh, visceral massage. Uh, you can do gargling. So there's all these different things that can be helpful. Um, but again, depends if that's the problem and on which side. Because sometimes you'll see autonomic dysfunction more on the right side versus the left side. So if you're going to do vagal nerve stim, you're going to want to do it more on one side versus the other. Okay. No, that makes sense. Um, can I ask you too, the, uh, is there a, a kind of a a default type of migraine or are there a million? I mean, I hear people always talk about, is there an ophthalmic migraine or, you know, uh, they see spots or their vision is gone or, you know, what do you, what do you typically see? Oh, this is, this is a very long topic, <laughs> but, um, but suffice it to say there, in my opinion, based on the, the, the understanding of migraine in the next couple of years, we're going to have to come up with a different diagnosis of migraine, true migraine and okay. migraine like headache disorders. All right. Okay. Because what happens is you get a lot, I get a lot of patients that have severe cervicogenic headache or post-traumatic headache 
or something else that meets the criteria of migraine, even though it's not migraine, right? Because the, the, the gold standard is the ICHD3 uh, criteria. And if you look that up, but it's not like you have to have this and this. It's like, well, if you have these two things or these two things and this thing. And so now you can have true migraine that's classified properly, or you can have a really bad tension headache or that's you know light sensitive or post-traumatic headache that's actually a concussion that now they say you know you magically develop migraine. That's not how migraine works. It's genetic. So you don't just get it from getting in a car accident. Okay. So uh, that's where the, so, the distinction would be. If I mean, if there aren't those genetic components, it's going to end up being some sort of a... Uh, what was the second thing you talked about? Uh, yeah, yeah, cervic- yeah, cervicogenic or most commonly we see it's post-traumatic. Um, okay. But if you understand how actually migraine works, which is this hyperexcitability of certain neurons, now like an, an ophthalmic or an ocular migraine makes sense because now you get that same dysfunction but more in the occipital lobe. If you have it in the lower part of the brainstem in the vestibular nuclei, now you have vestibular migraine. If you have it on the entire one side of the brainstem and cortex, now you're getting what's called a hemiplegic migraine, which are where you know you have patients that look like they're having a full stroke um, when they actually get an episode. And those patients respond really well to what we do. We, we really actually enjoy treating hemiplegic cases uh, because the medications that you usually use for migraine are contraindicated in hemiplegic. So it's like, what the heck do you do? Yeah. And, but if you get this whole you know, bucket theory and you understand levels of activation, well, now it makes perfect sense to do these weird exercises, yeah. stimulate all these different parts of the brainstem and stabilize them. Um, I mean, I've had patients that have had, that literally been stuck on the couch or stuck in bed for seven months because they can't move. Wow. And we just changed their diet. Now they're up moving around. Then they come out here. You're able to treat them. Now they're back to, to normal. They haven't had an episode in years. So somebody has, uh, they have a, I mean, a, uh, is there, I guess I'm the question I would, I'd be curious if, is there a time where somebody just popping for ibuprofen is not going to put a dent in the pain? I mean, is that the case? Unfortunately. Yeah. And that's where, uh, you know, again, by the time most people get to us, they've, they've tried 15 different things and 40 different meds. So, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, again, that, that's not my specialty. So right. uh, typically uh, ibuprofen can help. Sometimes it doesn't. A lot of times tryptans are really helpful. So that's, you know, what most people are prescribed. But again, that's an abortive. It's, it's helpful once the migraine has already manifested. It's not doing anything to actually keep it from manifesting to begin with, okay. um, which is where the activation comes in. So um, it's one thing I try to get across is there is no such thing as a good or bad migraine treatment. Okay. Just for some people, you know, they need the meds or they need, you know, acupuncture, they need nutrition. And some people, they don't. And that's where it's really frustrating because every migraine patient has been told by 50 different people, Oh, you just got to try this exactly. or do that, and that'll fix it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's maddening. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm even thinking of just, I don't know if they're just common uh, headache or migraine myths of just, it's just hydration, you know, or again, it's these pressure points or it's just, you just need more rest or, or de-stress or, so it sounds like it can be everything. It can be everything. Yeah. yeah. When actually it's, it's interesting. The last uh, module that I taught, is all basically about medication surgeries and psychology of migraine because there's this huge stigma. There's this huge misunderstanding of it. Uh, there was a study out that said that of chronic migraine patients, the ones that are having like 15 or more a month, uh-huh. the spouses of those migraine patients, 75% didn't really believe that they were dealing with wow. what they were dealing with. 75%. And so then you can imagine how that translates uh-huh. to stress and anxiety and guilt And that makes things worse. And it's just this terrible cycle. And so when you can actually explain to somebody what's going on, give them control of it, that anxiety starts to to regress. Um, And that's where you see, again, a good progression of symptoms. Now, if they have clinically diagnosed anxiety or they're on medications, that's where, you know, I won't even treat them at this point unless they're doing neurofeedback or seeing a psychologist or doing something to address that because anxiety by itself is hyperexcitability of the neurons. And so if if we can't globally handle that, it's really challenging to treat the migraine. That's okay. So that just kind of blew my mind. So uh, (laughs) semi pun intended. So then if somebody is, if that's the way that they feel heard or the, you know, kind of going to that of do, don't you hear me? Do you care for me in a couple setting? Or if they're, if somebody has uh, OCD and it's that, you know, that um, the, the obsession brings on that anxiety. I mean, so those things all could kind of go into that bucket, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. That's a, um, are you okay if I move on to brain fog or, I mean, I, okay. Cause I love the, I mean that I love that we 
kind of went down the migraine path. I have a lot of people that that comes up in therapy a lot. And I do, I can see the eye roll at times of a partner who feels like, here we go again, you know, that this excuse, you know, which then the person feels not heard. And um, I love that. Okay. But I'm fascinated by the whole concept of um, brain fog. So I, I, you know, is that a, is that just kind of a buzzword? Is that a diagnosis or what is brain fog? Well, it's funny. It's kind of like dizziness where, you know, I always ask people to explain it because some people, when they say dizziness, they mean the room spinning. Some people say it's their spinning. Some people, they just get lightheaded. Brain mm-hmm. fog's the same way is what do you mean? Like, are you having a tough time remembering things? Do you feel like you're just kind of in a haze? Yeah. Uh, do you feel weird when you turn? Because all those things mean different things. Okay. Uh, most of the time, it's just this cognitive difficulty. It's, and we see it a lot with um, with athletes and high performing uh, professionals. So uh, we'll see it with like attorneys and doctors and uh, realtors and people that just have to be like quick on their feet all the time. Mm. And they'll say, "What the heck? I've been doing this for thirty years, and now all of a sudden I can't remember, you know, how to go through a contract, or I can't read a page, or I can't talk to a patient." And they feel terrible, right? But most of the time, say after a concussion or after head trauma. What, what happens, and this is, again, misconceptions with concussion, is they talk about like coup and counter coup and all this kind of stuff where the brain hits and where it rebounds. Oh. But where we're seeing most of the dysfunction is not necessarily where the cortex is, is hitting. It's the fact that no matter how your brain moves, you're tethering or putting pressure on that brainstem. brainstem. So you okay. see really, really common symptoms of vestibular ocular imbalances, vestibular spinal problems, the so difficulty with eyes, balance, posture. And there's such basic mechanisms that help to tell your brain where your body is in space that when it doesn't know exactly where you're at, all your brain resources are trying to figure out where you're at, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because if you don't know where you are in space, your your brain doesn't care about anything else. And so now that brain fog you're having is really because you can't track a target or you can't keep your eyes steady on something or you don't know where your neck is, so you're locking it up. So now you have headaches and neck tightness and all these things. And so... Before I attack brain fog for being, uh, you know, a frontal mechanism or a temporal lobe issue, I like to start midline and try to fix the basic, you know, eye mechanisms, balance mechanisms, head movement, all that kind of stuff, and then go to higher cognitive function like memory and dual tasking and those types of things. And there's tests that you can do to see if they're ready for that or if it's too much. Uh, but that's where we start: is can you track a target? Can you gaze stabilize? Can you? walk without falling over when you're trying to say the alphabet or something like that. Um, And then after all that's good, then we move on to more higher order cognitive. uh, So it's really stepping it back and then kind of seeing where you go from there where, okay. Exactly. Um, So when I have a a client that will maybe say, I'm just uh, yeah, I'm, I'm slow moving in the morning. I can't think straight until I get my caffeine or that sort of thing. I mean, is there truth to that? Is that, or is that, yeah, well, sometimes that can, so that actually points to a different mechanism, which is more HPA access dysfunction, um, that okay. whole hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPT, hypothalamic pituitary thyroid access, and that can just be a tank HPA access. And so that's where on migraine patients, I always look at hormones because 90% of the time there's there's involvement. With concussion, there is literature to say that that, that HPA access becomes dysfunctional, but I don't see it as commonly. So I typically do the rehab first, and if there's still the fatigue and the brain fog, then I'll run a hormone panel on them. And I want to look at everything from their sex hormones to their stress hormones to their metabolites to see how everything's functioning. Because if that stuff's out of whack and you're exhausted, well, it's hard to concentrate if you just want to take a nap, right? Okay. Uh, And so uh, that's one thing. If it's from a trauma or if it's been ongoing forever, then you think about sleep studies or you think about, you know, apneas or, or, or simple things like that. Um, but again, it, it just kind of depends on when it came on and, and how long it's been occurring. So I, I may or may not have uh, diet Mountain Dew in my hydro flask, but, um, regardless of <laughs> I that, won't judge you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, are there some, I mean, I'm kind of, you know, the more I kind of hear about this, uh, I guess we pr- should probably take good care of our brains. I mean, do you personally feel like there are those things, you know, the more you can kind of eliminate those kind of chemicals, the better? It, yeah. I mean, it's, it comes down to what's called allostatic load. And it's just how much stress you're putting on your body. Mm. And so most people think about emotional stress, which obviously is a huge one. Yeah. But you also have to remember chemical stress, um, physical stress, um, all these other things that, that contribute. And so uh, like caffeine, right? Caffeine is one where I'm not that big of a stickler for most patients, but uh-huh. with migraine patients, oh, I, I have people that do not like me. 
because uh, <laughs> caffeine is a drug. We don't like to hear it, but it's a drug. It's the most widely consumed drug in the world. And if you take it as an abortive, like you get a migraine and you take some Excedrin that has caffeine in it, that can help, right? It can help the, the properties that it has, helps with cerebrospinal fluid flow. Um, mm-hmm. It helps with some you know, the changes in vasoconstriction dilation. So in an acute phase, it can be helpful. But when you have it every day, it changes the way that your body produces all those different chemicals. Okay. And so it perpetuates these headaches. But when you get off of it, most people have withdrawal headaches. So now you get to the second, third, fourth day, and it sucks. And they say, all right, forget this. I'm going back on. Well, you were almost over the hump. And so once you get to that fifth or sixth day, your body stabilizes, you're in great shape. But most people don't make it. So they're like, I can't get off of caffeine. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a very, you know, no, uh, I have a no exception policy at this point because I've seen it screw up too many cases where if you're working with me, you're not doing caffeine for at least two months. And if, you know, if you want to get back on it, I'm, I'm all for it. But most people, you don't have to convince them when they feel great, then they have coffee, and then they feel terrible. It, it, my job is done. <laughs> hey, is, that, is that one of those things, too, where do you know if somebody's uh, not telling the truth about, you know, if they're like, yeah, I haven't had it all week. But I mean, is there a way for you to can you see that in, in the work you do? You know, I, there's not really a way to see it. But I'll, I'll be honest, most people are very open about it and they don't hide. Mm-hmm. There, It's almost like a like, kind of like a comical pride sort of thing, like. Yeah, I had it a couple of times last week. Gotcha. And uh, so I, I've never actually had an issue with people kind of secretly being on it. Um, right. You can also see it in in their uh, progression because we've done enough of these where I, I kind of know how I expect people to get better. And when they're not, it's like, man, we're missing something. What's going on? And yeah. caffeine is always the most obvious. So now it's, it, it's kind of like I start from the beginning. I'm like, look, if we're going to do this, I get it. You'll love it. We're not doing it. Um, and like... Uh, funny example i had a lady like four years ago that was having migraines like 20 times a month and she came in i said look you know um caffeine's something we'll have to deal with and uh how much are you drinking she goes oh she's like i'm having about eight a day i was like eight cups of coffee mm-hmm. holy cow she goes no eight pots of coffee Pot. oh <laughs> and I go, what <laughs> and, uh, and i go no that's not gonna work and uh, so she's, she's just like glaring at me and she just she leaves. Never saw her again. Um, but her, I still saw her fiance and he comes in two, three months later. And he goes, I got to tell you, she's like, he goes, it took her about a month and a half, but she weaned off of it. And ever since she's been off of caffeine, she hasn't had one headache since then. Oh. And uh, so I never saw her again. And I don't know how she did over the years, but I do know that she saw the direct correlation. It, it was awful for her, but she got off it. Now she's in good shape. So, um, Again, that's how you wanted to say, <laughs> say, I told you so off into the, the <laughs> yeah. and her name was Mrs. Folgers, right? That was even the, exactly. The, that was, exactly. <laughs> okay. So people, I, I don't know if I will keep this part in about the caffeine or not. No, I'm joking. Right. That, that's that's exactly. That'd be good for people. A bunch to of people leave. Yeah. <laughs> um, can I, so I, I, a couple of things that I just kind of looking on your website as well, and which I'll have links. I want to, you know, I mean, you've got so much good data on there. It, it's incredible. Um, I have ha- I've got a I've got somebody right now that has literally gone and, and had brain scans and come back and you know everything's fine and and uh, do you run into that often where you know do you get people that are the you're almost like the house of you know of the brain where people <laughs> don't know what to do and now you have to figure it out even if the brain scans look look clean yeah no it's it's so funny I, um, I, I told my wife you know after a couple of years into practice. You know, it's like the longer I'm in practice, the more I identify with house. Um, not, not, not that I, I feel like I'm not that good at it or anything, but um, you just kind of get frustrated because you, you hear the same thing over and over and over again. And you're yeah. like, I get it. Let me just get to work and like, see what I see. And uh, yeah. uh, luckily I haven't become that bitter yet, but, um, but what ends up happening is it, it's such a funny thing is I remember, I love the show. And mm-hmm. one of the things that he says is uh, they ask, well, why are, you, why are you different? He's like, well, you know, I, I, take people for that have strange diseases and I figure out what's going on and I diagnose them. And she's like, isn't that what all doctors do? And I remember thinking like, yeah, isn't that how it works? And then you realize that's not how it works. And, uh, and so what we're fortunate enough to be able to do is take people that have already gone through the brain scans and the blood work and ruled out all the things that are terrible. Right now we can still do that, but nobody comes to me for that. Right. They go to their medical neurologist, they go to their, you know, primary care, and they get the scans. Once they're clean, I can say, great. It's awesome news that you don't have a tumor. You don't have a stroke. You don't have this crazy infection. 
but you still have these symptoms. So yeah. now we can just focus on the function and say, look, what, whatever's going on is not what I call a hardware issue, right? So if your computer's messed up, you check the keyboard, the mouse, and the hard drive, and it's perfect. It's not a hardware issue. It's a software issue, right? Yeah. So the, th- the stuff that we're going to do to test you is not going to be like, oh, this is an obvious tumor, right? This is going to be, this part of the brain is not firing or is not as healthy as the other parts of the brain. Doesn't mean there's an abscess. Doesn't mean it's dead. It's just not as healthy as the other side. Easiest thing to think about is if you did, you know, uh, bicep curls every day on your right side and you never did it on your left side. Well, your Mm -hmm. left side might be totally fine, right? But it's not as healthy or strong as the right side. And that's what happens with the brain. And so for migraine patients, for example, 99.7% of all migraine patients will have perfectly clean brain scans as long as they don't have any other neurological signs. So when they come to me and they're like, well, nothing can be wrong. All my brain scans are fine. I'm like, yeah, they should be, right? That's normal. Um, And so that means we can get to work. And so now the cool thing is there's more advanced imaging these days, um, things like uh, diffuser tensor imaging for concussion that can actually look for changes in the white matter. So that's where the, the brainstem gets tethered. You can see when those that depolarization happens. Mm. Uh, they have spec scans, which looks for, for more functional changes, like Dr. Amen, um, yeah. psychiatrist, is really big into those. Um, there's, there's all these different things you can look for. But for me, it all comes down to the exam. And so we'll do things like posturography that we can actually map out and quantify their uh, sway patterns and their balance and stability. There's things like the student, uh, uh, video nystagography, which is where you can uh, use video cameras to track eye movements and all these different things. You can quantify all that stuff, but realistically, you can see it all bedside. Right? Oh, it's, okay. not, it's not like it jumps out at you all the time um, simply, but when you do this over and over and over and over and over again, you know what normal is supposed to look like. And you yeah. can see when there's an aberrancy and say a pursuit mechanism or in a gaze holding or in a saccadic activity. And then you start to build a case to say, huh, they kind of had an issue falling to the left when they were doing a Romberg. So they, you know, they had an aberrant VOR when they were going this way or their pursuits are kind of crappy to the right. And so now you're starting to think, yeah, there's something going on in that left cerebellum. So let's do therapies that could make that better. You try something. If those, those tests get better, you know, you're doing something good. If they get worse, you're not doing something good. Um, yeah. So it's kind of a test and measure uh, type exam. And then we can say, look, here's the therapies we think that are going to improve that brain function. And then that's how we get to work. Well, I like that. So because in therapy, I'll run into somebody tries something, they do a little mindfulness, they still turn back to an addiction. And then they're like, there you go. It didn't work. You know, and it's like, right. no, 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 we're going to keep trying. <laughs> we're going to keep going. We're, you know, what's next? Um, so it sounds like that's I, I really like that. I mean, you're just saying, all right, keep giving me data where, you know, there's, there's a lot of things we can do with that. Um, yep. I like that. I don't want to, I don't want to get to, but at the end of this before, I mean, you've got a, uh, a method named after you, the Harcourt method. And that is, is that around, um, traumatic brain injury or I haven't even talked to you about concussions. I'm fascinated by them. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's funny. I, I kind of, it was kind of a tongue in cheek, uh, okay. uh, because it's, it, it, I was just doing things differently. And I was like, I don't know. Cause I, I, I teach other doctors, uh-huh. um, and when I'm trying to explain it, they're like, where is this from? I'm like, I kind of make it up. Just call it the hardcore method. Um, and it was, okay, I love that by the way. Cause I was like, <laughs> okay, you're a, a regular human being, right. You know, cause I was yep. like, you know, uh, the, you know like, I, I think we'll call it the hardcore method. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's it kind of, kind of fun. And, yeah. and essentially what I did is, um, there was, when we were going through the TBI program, it's a really advanced, um, uh, program on, uh, eye movements and different, um, like assessments and treatments and all this kind of thing. And so one of the, the biggest challenges I was seeing to doctors getting into this type of treatment was they're like, there's a million things that we can do. How, what the heck do we do? Mm. And so we'll look at, you know, pursuits or saccades or BORs or optokinetics or all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you still have to do something with that patient. And so what I started doing is just having them doing some very simple uh, fixation on different targets. And I would have them move in different directions, inflection, extension, um, we would do left and right y'all as far as, you know, anterior, posterior movement. And you can correlate that to eye muscle dysfunction. You can correlate that to canal dysfunction. You can correlate that to cerebellar dysfunction. If you're more advanced and you kind of understand those things. But if you don't, I said, look, just figure out where they're not moving great and give them gaze stability in those directions. Just It's okay. just a starting point, right? Okay. Um, and it's, you know, for those that have taken more advanced, you know, traumatic brain injury modules and understand, they're like, that's pretty simple. I said, I know that's the point is you need something to, to, you know, sink your teeth into. So then when it's not working properly, now you understand why 
you know, pursuit or saccade or VOR or Rombergs or whatever is important for diagnosis. But if you know nothing else, well, you know where there's an aberrancy in the way that they move their head or they gaze fixate, then you can give therapies that help to recalibrate uh, those systems. So that's kind of my, my simple method. No, I love it. So it's like, uh, you know, my son plays basketball. If he can't dribble with his left hand, you know, everybody else is like, well, let's work on his the three point shot. Well, you know, let's, uh, let's do whatever. You're like, how about he uh, dribbles with his left hand for a little while? Why not? Yeah. And, and that's the <laughs> that thing is the hardcore method. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And you it can, do. no, yeah. I love that. Now for us, we use it more as a confirmation. So after I've done my whole exam, I'm like, all right, I expect this to be messed up in this direction. Okay. Let me just confirm it. Um, but uh, for people that, haven't been doing this for, for a long time or that are just trying to learn. It's like, yes, there are all these things you can consider, but here's something that you can just try, give a, a test, give a therapy, have them come back, retest it and see if it made a change, right? Just a real simple way to get started. And can that, and that can, I mean, in those kind of situations, I mean, we're talking kind of like uh, if I have somebody that does mindfulness a couple of days and says, uh, you know, it didn't really work. I mean, are, are you, people have to do these exercises is it hours or days or weeks? I mean, to, to really yeah. carve in those new neuro pathways, or is that what we're trying to exactly. do? Exactly. I mean, we know in research that actually to create, you know, neuroplastic changes, it takes about six weeks of, of you know, consistent okay. uh, treatment. And so normally we're doing a lot of kind of changing and then doing new therapies and, and, and altering them and increasing them. But once we get to a point where they're pretty stable, then I have them keep up with exercises on their own for about six weeks uh, at least. Now there's some cases where there's genetic abnormalities like movement disorders, for example, like dystonias and tics and myoclonus. Um, a lot of times you'll find that that's just genetically different. And if they keep up with some therapies here and there, they do really well. Um, but if they kind of stop or they, they go months or years without doing it, then it starts to, to pick back up. Whereas like with uh, concussion, a lot of times you fix it, they get better and then they're fine. Right. Okay. So it depends on the case and, and, um, how they respond to the therapies. Do you, uh, do you weigh in on, and you don't have to at all, but I mean, in the world of traumatic brain injury, do you weigh in a lot on concussions and, and sports? And do you get asked a lot of those type of questions? Yeah, we've done, um, we've done outside evaluations for former NFL players and okay. we work with some, uh, uh, professional fighters like in the MMA, uh, UFC actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we'll get opinions asked on that because the way that I diagnose and assess for concussion is different than like a neuropsychologist or, a neurologist. And so we're looking at, you know, vestibular ocular responses, vestibular spinal responses and things that you can't really fake. So yes. if you do yeah. a, you know, a you know, four or eight hour neuropsych exam, they're looking at all sorts of great stuff, but it's more cognitive. Um, whereas we're looking at stuff that's more uh, reflexive. And so if you combine those two, like a neuropsych exam, with what we do, you got a pretty good idea of, of how disabled or how severe it is. Um, and so we, you know, and, and I actually go out and I teach this stuff to coaches and athletes okay. and um, other people so that there's really simple ways that you can assess for this stuff, sideline where it's you know, free, you don't need baselines. Um, and so, you know, my goal is more education than anything else because the longer you go without treatment after concussion, the harder it is to fix. Gotcha. Okay. So um, you try to stay away from, you know, if somebody says, should my kid play football or should my kid fight? <laughs> is that kind of Hey, that's up to you. I mean, but well, the big thing with the NFL was basically they were trying to say that it wasn't causing damage. Right. And right, now right. it's kind of out there that it is kind of like, you know, if your kid wants to be a boxer, right. We've all seen boxers. Nobody's thinking that it's like a healthy sport or anything like that. But if they want to box, they're taking on that risk. And they know that there's possibility for brain damage. Yeah. Um, same thing with fighting, same thing with football. Now yeah. uh, the NFL is doing things to try to reduce that risk, right? There's mm-hmm. new health technology. There's new diagnosis. Um, they're working on, right? Yeah. But the reality is you're still these, the biggest, strongest guys you've ever seen running into each other full speed. Yeah. It, it increases your chance. Doesn't mean you definitely will. Um, it just definitely increases your chance. So understanding that risk going in, if you want to play, that's fine. Um, you know, I've said, if my kid wants to play football, he's, he's more than happy. I'm more than happy to have him be the kicker or the punter. Oh, uh, right. but, but outside of that, I, I think we're going to hold off from football. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I've, so I've been able to work with a few professional athletes, football players, um, uh, fighters, and it is, I mean, they're very, I feel like, and of course, uh, all confidentiality, I feel like, um, the, uh, yeah, they're aware, you know, of, of the, the risks and, and that sort of thing, at least at the time when, you know, they're playing. And, and, uh, so people just telling them you shouldn't or whatever, isn't necessarily very productive. I mean, that's doesn't help. They're going to do it. No. And that's the thing is if now if we're saying, yes, you should play this sport and there's no risk, that's not okay. Yeah. If you're yeah. saying, Hey, look, there is some risk. If you want to play, 
go for it. Uh, I'm, I'm perfectly happy. And so like our fighter uh, patients, you know, I, I, I always tell them, I'm like, I can never encourage you to do these things, but knowing that you're going to do it anyway, yeah. in between fights, we'll have them come back um, and just make sure we can tune things up and get them as stable as possible. So a, their brain function is as good as it can be, but B now when they go in for their next fight, they're less likely to get, you know, hit as many times. So then they're more likely to be, be stable. So yeah, um, that that's part of the, the strategy behind it. No, I love it. Um, can I ask you, uh, and you know, before, uh, before we go, do you have just kind of simple brain or eye exercises that if somebody is sitting there, if they're riding uh, to work, if they're, you know, commuting somewhere on a plane, whatever that you recommend doing, I mean, cause I, and I think this is also based on the, you know, do, um, doing Sudoku or word searches. I mean, are those really, you know, healthy brain exercises or do you have kind of more evidence-based ones? Well, uh, and for what specifically, just, um, that's a, that's a good question and nothing, you know, just kind of like, Hey, if I'm sitting around, I can either be playing candy crush or I could be doing, you know, cause I'm a big fan of now starting to turn to, all right, let's do some breathing and we'll count you sure. know, is that through the mouth or are there any things that maybe would be good with your eyes or, or that sort of thing? Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of things. I mean, I encourage any type of, uh, rotational or translational activity. So, you know, traditional gaze stability exercises, rotational stuff is all good. Obviously I don't encourage them while you're driving or in the car, um, but, uh, so a, a good, you know, way to go about it is, uh, there was a great study out of Stanford a couple of years ago, uh, looking at neurocognitive function over time. So they took patients that were like 75 years old, all the way up to 95 or until they passed away. And they were looking at every factor from social to uh, environmental to everything they could. And they said, what reduces your chances of having cognitive decline? Mm, okay. time? And so things like crossword puzzles in Sudoku, they actually reduce cognitive decline by like 45, 48%. Okay. Pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, you know, good diets helped a little bit. Um, but the number one thing that they saw across the board, and this is like 25,000 participants. The number one thing that reduced cognitive decline by 76%, which would blew everything else out of the water. Guess what it was? I want to say, uh, please not, please don't be asleep. How about exercise? It, I, that's what I would have thought. Um, that in that study, they didn't show a big improvement there. Um, there's other studies that do show a redu- reduction in, uh, with exercise, but it was dancing. It was people oh, that dance. Dr. Harker. I was going to say, <laughs> I feel alive when I dance because I don't know how to dance. Okay. Really? Dancing? Yeah. Because think about it. It's one of the few things wow. that uh, causes you to, to do what's called a dual task, which is where you're doing motor activity and wow. you're having to think about it. So actually the fact that you're not good at dancing is awesome for your brain, right? Because oh, okay. be, Thank you. Because you're trying to get better at it. And yeah. so I tell people if they're you know starting dancing and then they just master the foxtrot, they don't even have to think about it. Well, learn something else because now you're not dual tasking yourself. Um, but the people that danced on somewhat of a regular basis and they started at 75. So it doesn't mean you have to do it your entire life. Okay. Uh, the people that danced on a regular basis, they did awesome. They did That's really awesome. Well. You just yeah. you gave me my clickbait title too. I mean, <laughs> to wait till minute 40, you know, to find out the, the key to longevity, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's so right. I love it. Uh, so, so Dr. Harcourt, this was, uh, this was awesome. I mean, I would love to have you back on too. I mean, I just, I feel like, uh, yeah. billion more so much. maybe next time we tackle some of the, uh, um, I don't know, some nice myths of the, the brain or that sort of thing. Love um, where can people find you? Yeah. So the, the most active we are is on Instagram. Uh, okay. We're at migraine doctors. Uh, you can also find us on our websites, ixneuro.com. Uh, okay. That has all the information about both our Santa Barbara and our Beverly Hills office. Um, and then the book that I'll be having come out soon is going to be titled mastering migraine okay. and uh, should be out soon. We're working on formatting right now, uh, but that's kind of the last step. And if you know, if you have any questions, obviously you can call in or, or contact us, but uh, like I said, we're, we're happy to reach out. There's just, there's so much misinformation. All yeah. we're trying to do is get it out there. So, um, you know, we, we encourage questions. We, we really, we I absolutely love this. I mean, uh, I really enjoyed this. Um, you're, uh, I'm kind of being very, uh, authentic as my, as my therapist. So very easy to talk to. Um, not, <laughs> not like I was worried, like I was going to run to some uh, super brainiac that was going to make you feel bad. <laughs> no such luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the brainiac is there, but also built very well versed. Uh, the last thing I have to tell you, when I was a child, I don't know how old you are. Do you, do you say that on the air? Do you, yeah, uh, I'm 33. Yeah, okay, 33. right. So, very, so I'm, I'm a much older man. And uh, I used to have the Guinness Book of World Records maybe in the bathroom. And so okay. I remember always being fascinated by the world's tallest man because I am, <laughs> I am the opposite of the world's tallest man. Sure. And they talked about that he had, you know, I don't know, had some pituitary mm-hmm. tumor. And then anytime I would see some giant, you would read about this pituitary tumor. And when I was young, I used to fantasize about maybe taking a fall on the playground. 
and just smacking that pituitary gland and then just growing. Yeah. Have you ever seen this? Is this a, is this something you've run into? I, I hate to bust your dreams, but I, it's not really a thing. Um, now, if, if somehow you got some swelling right around there, it's possible, right? Maybe. Uh, but yeah, that's like Tony Robbins. That's what he has. Um, right, right. type of deal. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's what Andre the giant had. It's, yeah, it's a pituitary tumor. You get, you just get a continual and increased release of this uh, HGH and you get big. It's kind of the deal. Um, but, uh, you know, usually it doesn't correlate so well to health, which is why I think people like point. are, are, are yeah. very health conscious. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, sorry. I don't think no, that's, that's okay. I, I, you know, that was, uh, <laughs> there. And I think at 49, my dreams of the NBA, I, I, okay. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Arcourt, thank you so much for taking the time. And, uh, I can't wait to talk to you again. Um, all right, I'm going to hit stop, but hang on one second. Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind is Wasting rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most It's wonderful I have to wonder Which ghost is mine He eats my ponder And somehow takes up all my time The screen Yours.